Mark 8, 1 to 21. In those days again, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed people with bread here in this desolate place? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to these also, said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And then he sent them away. And immediately they got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanlufa. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having ears, eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And, you, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you, get, did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thank you. So we're in Mark chapter 8, the first uh, part of Mark chapter 8. And we've been talking about the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, for the last number of months, walking from the very first verse of Mark that says the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and moving on. Now we're to the end of what most people would say is the end of Act 1, Uh, Mark is divided into two acts, you could say, two parts. And the first part is Jesus' introduction, and as he heals, and as he teaches, and um, he is introduced as the shepherd of Israel. He is introduced to the people as he travels around with his disciples. He's called his disciples, and he's begun to do um, that work. Next week... Kent will be preaching, and we'll be jumping into the second act as he starts to head toward the cross. And so this is the climax of the first act. Um, last week, or two, it was, it was I think two or three weeks ago now, we talked about the first time that Jesus fed 5,000 people. 
And as you heard Britta read from Mark chapter 8, um, it hap it's happened again. Jesus fed this time 4,000 people. And each time as we're seeing Jesus preach and heal, um, the titles of our sermons tend to go the good news for somebody. And um, last, yes, last week we were talking about the good news for the, does anybody remember? Excluded, that they are included in Christ. Today, we have a really good message from Jesus. This is good news for slow learners. I don't know if this is good news to you. This is good news to me. And I'll tell you why. Jillian and I um, celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary this week. I paused. I did. I paused. We celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. Thank you, Ryan, for that good clap. On the way up Pikes Peak, we um, went from 7,000-ish feet to 14,000 feet and uh, on a hike of 12 miles up the mountain. And um, that seemed to be, to us, a fitting allegory for the beauty and difficulty of marriage, right? I think the main reason, and it was hard. I tell you if, if you, if some of you marathoners, you say 12 miles, it's not that big a deal. When you get to 14,000 feet, it becomes a big deal to people who live at 600 feet, like the rest of us, right here. 686 feet is the city of Detroit. And you start to lose the ability to continue on. We got above the tree line, on Wednesday on our hike up there, and the sun seemed closer, there was no shade, the ground was now like sand, it seemed like it was a joke that was being played on us as we tried to make our way up. At one point, we were despairing of life, we didn't say that to one another, but I think I, on the way down I asked her, Did, were you ever just a little bit scared that, you know, maybe not only would we not make it up, but we would not survive this whole thing? And she said, yeah, it crossed my mind. I didn't want to say it out loud. So we thought, you know, we finally made it up. At the, toward the top of the mountain, we were walking, counting our steps. And sometimes we could get 30, sometimes 50 steps. And we'd have to sit down, drink, wait, and go another 30, 50 steps. Sit down, drink, wait. And we were doing that the last two or three hours all the way to the top. And we thought, you know, I, I felt this is a great, I mean, you could see all of Colorado, basically, the Rocky Mountains out from behind you and in front of you. And I thought, this is the beauty of marriage and the difficulty at the same time. I think the main reason that marriage is so difficult, on the difficult side of it, is that we are slow learners, right? I don't know if any of you wives agree about your husband, that he's a slow learner. It depends on how long you've been married, maybe. Um, but 20 years, I've been a very slow learner about some things. And so to get to the top, I felt this is celebrating that slow does eventually get you there, right? And so we see here in this passage, the beginning to the end, Jesus dealing with the slowness of his disciples to learn and to understand. And we're going to learn why that's good news for you and me, that the Bible is so honest about the slowness of the disciples to understand. So um, we're going to break this, as is typical, into three parts, because this is actually in three parts. Jesus feeding the 4,000, takes a boat trip, meets with the Pharisees for two verses, leaves very quickly, takes another boat trip, and he spends the rest of the time talking to the disciples. So what we're going to do is we're going to first talk about the needy crowd Secondly, the argumentative Pharisees, 
And thirdly, the slow learning disciples. So as we start here in verses 1 through 9 and look at the listening crowd or the needy crowd um, and how Jesus interacted with them. So let's look here in these verses. In the first verse, we find the exact same situation that Jesus was in in chapter 6. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, there's people here, I have compassion for them, they have no food. If I send them away, I'm ad-libbing, that they're going to faint on the way. And he asked his disciples, do you have any food? And they said, uh, seven loaves. So not much was the answer. Not enough was the answer. So the situation is the same. And we also have the same compassionate Savior. In verse 2 and 3, um, a, few, a few weeks ago, we talked about how the purpose of Jesus explaining his compassion to his disciples is because he is forming compassionate disciples. He is forming his compassion into his leaders, into his people. And so this happens again. We have the same compassionate Savior in verse 2 and 3. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. Also, we have the same confused disciples. If you remember in chapter 6, they didn't, Jesus said, you give them to eat, and they said, how? We don't have enough. And here in verse 4, the same confusion of the disciples, they said, how can, we, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Finally, in verse 6 through 9, we see the same miraculous provision that Jesus said, hey, everybody sit down, disciples come to me, I'm going to break the bread, and then there were also seven fish there, I think that was the number, right? Yeah, and, he, and uh, they had a few small fish, so it doesn't say the number of fish in verse 7, and he broke it, they ate, they were satisfied, and they hadn't leftovers. This is the same exact situation. In fact, some critics have said that this is the same story, repeated a second time, this is not a different story. Uh, I think there's a few reasons that we can trust that this is not the same story, but this, the, a, sa a similar incident happening a second time. One of the reasons is that Mark was very clear to say this is in a different region. The first being a very Jewish crowd, and the second was in a place of a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. We could understand, and we don't know for sure if Jesus meant this to mean this, but in his first providing for the Jews and the second providing for the Jews and Gentiles together could have been a picture of how Jesus would provide for his church. The first being a provision for his people in the wilderness, and second, the church under Nero was in the wilderness of persecution, and that this was a symbol that Jesus was going to be providing not just for the Jews, but for all of his people who would come to him by faith. Secondly, um, Jesus later asked his disciples to remember both events and said, you remember what happened when there were 5,000 and they remembered the exact number of baskets left over and you remember the second time and they remembered a different number of baskets left over. So it seems like Mark is very clear and Jesus was very clear with his disciples that this is a second event of the same thing. Thirdly, we just know that Jesus teaches us through repetition because we're slow learners. So if you look at the story 
three of the four things that I, that I said were the same are not surprising. It's not surprising they were in the same situation because you have people that have just forgot everything and went to follow this Jesus. He was healing. He was, his teaching was captivating. It's not surprising they were in the same situation without food a second time. It's not surprising that he had compassion on him because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever and that he would, he would feel for their needs. It's also not surprising that in his miraculous power, without asking a special favor from the Father, just speaking himself as one of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, could do this miracle in a miraculous way and provide the food. But what is surprising is that the disciples didn't quickly remember the first miracle. When Jesus asked the question here in verse 3, um, or in verse, four, in verse 3, he, he tells them about the problem, and then in verse 4, they ask this question, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, you and me, were reading this, and two chapters before, if we had read it straight through, it would have been maybe six minutes ago, we would have read how this just happened, and we would have quickly had this answer. For them, it could have been a number of minimum days, probably weeks um, even possibly up to a month or two of time separating these two events. But still, they are confused about what Jesus could possibly do in this situation. And the reaction reminds us of the sinful doubt of Israel in the wilderness as remembered in Psalm 78, 19. And uh, we, um, Sydney, read this. It says, and they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? The question, can God provide, was a doubt. Was wondering, what could God possibly do in this impossible situation? Even though they had seen what God could do. So, this for me is the beginning of understanding the slowness of the disciples to understand. It's going to set us up for the question that Jesus asks in verse 21 at the end of our passage, do you still not understand? So why do we need, as people, God to repeat things so often, and we, and we come to it almost like it's a brand new thing, though we should have already learned that situation? Why do you and I need to hear, what do we need to hear repeated today? Why is there this second story in here? Because it would be easy as we preach through Mark to just, yeah, we've already dealt with this story, so let's jump over this story and get to the next thing because we already know this story. So why do we need this repeated? Well, when you are in the wilderness, God is compassionate toward you to provide for you. But when you feel that hunger in the wilderness, as metaphorically speaking, we tend to forget that God has come through for us every time before, and he will do it again. So we hear this story, and we're reminded that God is near to the hungry. And by hungry, I mean the sick. I mean the dying. I mean the depressed. I mean the spiritually dry. I mean the relational conflict and emergencies that we have in life. God is near to those that are hungry and are coming to him to be fed. Another reason, I think, is that God will provide through us what he won't give to us. I don't know if you've heard that before, 
But I think we need reminded of this. As I read this and prepared to teach on it today, I felt like the Lord was telling me, you haven't quite learned the lesson yet. And I, I'll give you one illustration. As a church, we're praying about, and we, since we arrived, we've been thinking together with some of you, what do we do about a location? We're meeting in a place that isn't ours, and to buy a building, we have some funds for it, but it's a very expensive endeavor to buy a building. And as I was reading this, I don't know that, um, that this will be forever, but it's as if God was trying to speak to our church through this, that I'm trying to provide for the city through you, right? So could God be steering us away from spending on ourselves so that he can spend through us? Could it be possible that he gave the fish and the bread to the disciples so that they wouldn't hoard it? but that they would give it. Yesterday I sat on the, uh, the front deck of a, um, of a Syrian brother and his family who were gonna have their lights turned off yesterday. And because of some of the giving of this church, I was able to tell him, we're gonna pay for your electric bill so they won't turn your lights off. And I told him and his, da his daughter and his son this story about how God gives to his people so that they will give further. And I explained to them the old story of the bucket and the, and the hose. And we looked at the garden hose and a bucket. And I said, God wants to use us as a hose to give to your family, not as a bucket so that we would hoard it to ourselves. But it's funny, we really need that message repeated, don't we? Because we're so, we're, we're, we tend to want to hold on to what God gives us and not pass it on. And so... How often do we need to be reminded that God has given to us to be compassionate to others? I feel like more than once. So this first scene comes to an end here in verse 10. And it says, And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This was just simply on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. They were on a kind of a mixed Jew Jewish-Gentile side on the east and they got in the boat and went to the west. This is the shortest of conflicts that I think we ever see Jesus have here in verse 11 and 12. And this is, sets up our second scene with the argumentative Pharisees. It says in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, First of all, the, the Pharisees, they, they came to Jesus, number one, to argue, and number two, to demand a sign from heaven, a sign that he was the Messiah. So what was a sign? A sign was an act of God that accompanies the word of God. So this is that God's word, when it comes, has some proof that we know this prophet is speaking from God, and they wanted a sign. But had the Messiah, had Jesus already provided? In fact, John said that if they had written everything that Jesus did, it would not be able to hold all of the books that could be written and fill the sky of heaven. And we've read about just a, some of them, and I would say that if we came to these um, objectively, that these are pretty strong signs that Jesus is the Messiah. First of all, the Messiah in the Old Covenant was said that when he comes, he would heal and that he would provide for the poor, that he would teach 
and guide like a shepherd. Jesus provided daily healings and signs that they could have said, but they wanted to raise the bar higher and say, jump over it now, and jump over it now, and jump over it now. Jesus didn't give them an answer. He sighed. And this is, I can imagine the intimacy of observation that Peter, Mark was writing Peter's account of what happened as Peter watched the spirit of, of Jesus physically show, just sighed, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus' response was quick, visible, audible. Reminds us of what James says in James 4, 6. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is foolishness in being unconvincible. There's a difference in seeking for truth and being unconvincible about truth. God will not provide for you something that he has already shown you. So Jesus warns them in verse 15, a little further down, it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So this phrase, beware, watch out, beware. These are two different words that basically mean pay attention, look, I want to teach you something. So Jesus had just left from this conflict with the Pharisees, and he's with his disciples, and now he's warning them and asking them to pay attention to what just happened with the Pharisees. And he says to beware of something. He says the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, leaven was common, a common illustration in those days for that little thing that corrupts everything. Leaven is something we still use in bread. Um, it's actually a fungus. I imagine you know that if you bake bread, but it's a live thing. And when, it get, when you put a little bit into the bread and you let it sit, it by itself, in ways we don't understand, works its way into every part and every piece of that bread. So what is then this leaven, the corrupting power of the Pharisees, he says, and of Herod? In Matthew and in Luke, Jesus repeats this same warning. At one time he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what is this he's talking about? Herod and the Sadducees, you could say they're kind of in the same boat. They're a secular religious people, like they use religion, but they really don't believe in the afterlife. They're all about here and now, and they weren't receiving Jesus. The Pharisees were your other form of unbelief. They were religious hypocrisy. So they were acting as if they loved God and following all of his rules while really it was money and power that they loved. And they wanted more of it. So these are two extremes of the same leaven. And that leaven is not just a sort of an unbelief that doesn't yet believe, but it's an unbelief that refuses to believe, no matter the signs, and continues to demand and test God. This reminds us of the 10 spies when the 12 spied out the land of Canaan and 10 came back and said, the people are too strong, they are too big, we cannot. Now what had these people just seen, the other 10 spies? They had seen God 
performed 10 plagues in Egypt, and they had seen God open up the river, the, the Red Sea, to let them walk through. They had seen God for 40 years, well, it wouldn't have been 40 years yet, but they had seen God sustain them and feed them in the wilderness with manna and with meat. And still, when they looked at a person that was just a little bit taller than them, they said, oh, we can't do that. Isn't that funny? How hard of heart we can be to believe things that God has shown us over and over again. So the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is this unconvincible attitude toward God that said, yeah, maybe you've done it before, but I don't believe you'll do it this time. It's this testing of God to say that he can't. It reminds me of the 9-11 deniers or the Holocaust deniers or the moon landing deniers. You could show them, or the flat earthers. Anybody know any about these people? You could show them every bit of evidence in the world, but they're going to hold on to that little bit of doubt and say, nah, you haven't convinced me. So why was Jesus then talking to his disciples who didn't have the attitude of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and of Herod and telling them to beware of this leaven of the Pharisees? I think we can make a few applications for us as followers of Jesus who have not, like the Pharisees said, we don't believe in you, Jesus, or Herod who have rejected him. I think there's a few things that we could learn. First of all, in our witness for Jesus, apologetics, especially some of our college students involved in apologetics, apologetics has its limits. That is to say, you can show someone the good news and identity of Jesus, but you cannot convince them. Only the Holy Spirit can convince them. Sometimes you have to walk away and focus on the disciples. That's what Jesus did here. Another application is that a word to the argumentative hearts. Now, anytime we have a group of people coming to listen to a sermon, there are some who have a heart like a Pharisee. It's an argumentative heart who said, yeah, prove it to me. Oftentimes, we find that in those who grew up in the church. And now it's not advantageous for them to say the things that might show they have an argumentative heart. That gets them in trouble makes them look bad, and they have to be here. So I want to talk to some of you, and I, if you're a teenager or a college student today, and maybe if somebody dragged you here and against your will, otherwise if you're an adult, mostly that doesn't happen with adults, but maybe some of you husbands. Uh, do you have an argumentative heart? Be aware, God resists the proud. That is a dangerous spot to be in that God would resist you, that he would be far from you. When Jesus met that attitude, yeah, you've shown me, but yeah, now prove it, he sighs and he walks away. So if you, have a, if you come to Jesus with a yeah, prove it to me kind of attitude, I want to just give you the same warning Jesus gave his Pharisees. Well, look out, beware. This attitude coming to Jesus we, cannot, we can believe that he will be far from the proud and that he will resist the proud. This is the, the thing that he's warning his disciples about is for the church. The disciples represent to Jesus the church. 
And the church is to be made up of, this is why the church of Jesus is to be made up of baptized believers. Because it is not a place, it's a social club, it's a place of fellowship around a common faith. It doesn't mean if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not welcome here. You are welcome to come here if you are a believer in Jesus and listen. But the membership of a church is to be made up of those who have submitted themselves to Jesus. And it is 11 in the church, in the, the mass that is the church, to have inside of its membership and inside of, its, of those who belong, people who do not at all submit themselves to Jesus. So if you're coming to church and you say, I like the community, but I don't really know about Jesus. I don't want to submit myself to Jesus. If you continue in that situation for a long time, Jesus says to beware of a leaven of a Pharisee who would not submit themselves to Jesus, the Son of God. And so this is the, the warning, not for the slow learner, but for the hard-hearted. And this is a, a very important distinction that I think God's Word makes that we want to make here, that I want to make, is don't get confused if you have a hard time learning, and we're going to talk about this, if you're a little bit slow like I am to learn and understand, or like Peter was and the other disciples, don't get this confused with God resisting you because you have a hard heart. And that's what we're going to talk about. What is Jesus' attitude toward slow learners? So let's look here in verse 14 through 21 to finish this passage. Um, in this third part, we see the slow learning disciples, that Jesus is patient with slow learners. Um, in verse 14, it says that they had only brought one piece of bread. I imagine that's because they left so fast, because Jesus was so fed up with the Pharisees, they just got on the boat and got out. They didn't buy anything. They didn't get bread. And in verse 16, it says they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They've, the only part they heard of Jesus' warning about the leaven of the Pharisees was the word leaven, and they immediately thought of bread, and they thought, is he rebuking us for not bringing bread? Well, Jesus has to walk them through some teaching, a teaching moment here. And in verse 17, he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Come on, guys. Do you not yet perceive or understand He's a little surprised. You've been around for a while. You don't know what I'm talking about. He says, are your hearts hardened? Having ears do you not see, um, eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? So here he's connecting a heart with understanding. Um, here's the, the thing about Jesus, if you read this here and understand what it means for you and me. Jesus is our patient teacher. So he is your patient teacher. If you feel like you're a slow learner, and I don't mean that you just have a hard time reading, but I mean that you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Or I mean that you seem to need to keep learning the same lessons that you felt you should have had by now. Jesus is our patient teacher. He leads his disciples through a conversation with the purpose to teach them, to change their hearts and to change their minds. What a wonderful Savior we have. Who would do that for us? He is our high priest. You know, the Bible says that the Messiah would be the high priest of his 
family that all of the other little priests point to in the Old Testament. That is to say, a high priest brings us to God, and that's clear, right? There is no other person, no other sinful priest on this earth who can bring us to God because they also need their sins forgiven. Only Jesus is our high priest, so he can take us to the Father, but then he also is the one who brings God to us, meaning that he is the teacher of every believer and that he is teaching you through the circumstances and failures that you're experiencing. You know, Jesus could have very easily just made this, multiplied the fish and the bread for his disciples and then, but he keeps talking to his disciples and he's causing them to think through these needy situations. Now, you may be going through a feeling of failure or a feeling of deep frustration with yourself or need, and this is God's grace to you as he teaches you something. And you should not devalue or, what's the word for minus valuar? Can somebody help me? You should not lessen the value of the difficulty you're going through for the thing that you're going to learn. This is the purpose of our, often the purpose of our circumstances as God leads us through difficulties is through this didactical conversation, through his word and other believers, he is slowly teaching us. He is our teacher, our patient teacher. Jesus did not abandon his project with his disciples at this point and say, you know what, guys? Just forget this whole thing. I'm going to do this whole church leadership shepherding thing myself. You guys are idiots. I've tried with you. I've told you once and more than once, and you're not getting it. Scrap the whole disciple thing. I'll just stay here and lead this global church, this global mega church from Jerusalem. He didn't do that. What he did was he stayed with them, and he continued to teach them. He knew how they would eventually turn out, growing into the image of Jesus, yet not completely. Psalm 86, one says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace is this. Not only that Jesus, that God extended grace to us in Jesus, but that he keeps on and keeps on and keeps on teaching us and extending that grace to us until we learn it. Um, as an illustration, or maybe an application, possibly you were raised by parents. I imagine if you were raised by fallen, sinful parents, you may have been raised by parents like this who were often angry and impatient with you. Maybe um, they rarely if ever, admitted that they were wrong. Some of our kids are still in our church service today, and I know some of your parents personally, and I've heard them, that they tell you sometimes when they're wrong, don't they? But imagine if you never heard a parent tell you that they were wrong. And many of you don't find that hard to imagine. And that they were very often, as a small child, they were angry with you anytime you would mess up and do something that you broke something, or messed with something you weren't supposed to mess with. I'm sure none of you kids messed with stuff you weren't supposed to mess with. Right? I, I sure didn't. But imagine that that happened. 
And though they were, they, they, and this, and parent, did you, possibly you were raised by a parent who always thought they were right about everything. Every theological opinion that they have and every practical matter, they were always right about it all the time. What would that create in us as we grow up? Well, we learned that we have to fake it till we make it. And we cannot ad admit that we don't know anything or that we failed or that we've messed up something that we touched and it messed up. We would always try to hide it. We would be afraid that this parent would find out. What you also might miss is the patient hand of God with you. You might confuse yourself for a Pharisee or for a hard-hearted person when in fact you're just a slow learner like Jesus' disciples. If, if you were like me, for years I struggled to know if I was really a born-again Christian and my sins were forgiven. It took me years. I was a slow learner. I mean, I had God's word here, but it took me a really long time to come to a point where I was just totally at peace with what Jesus did for me on the cross to save me. It took me a long, a long time. And I've, looking back on that, I can see God was patient with me, just like a kind father, as he was teaching me and allowing me to struggle, but he wanted me to learn. He was not waiting for me to be in doubt and waiting for me to be confused so that he could finally scream at me the way a parent that has no patience for their son might, but he was like a patient, kind father leading me to slowly understand his deep love for me. So if you're a slow learner today, if you have doubts and concerns and you want to understand the Lord, it's not that you're saying, God, you can't do anything to me to prove anything. But you're trying to understand God, but you struggle through doubt and through discouragement, and you feel like the same hole that you fell in before, you're falling in again. There's some really good news for you. Jesus had 12 disciples that he determined would lead his whole church who were just like that. You know, it should have the same humbling effect on us that it had on his disciples. Do you know why Mark wrote these very disparaging things about the disciples of Jesus? Because the disciples of Jesus told them. They told Mark about this. Peter relayed to Mark about how he denied Jesus three times and about how they didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about when everybody else reading this was like, come on, guys, it's easy, right? They told Mark, and it's written for us here, so this should have the same effect on it. I think it should have three effects in our leadership as parents and as pastors and elders and as Sunday school teachers and moms and dads. I think this should have three basic effects on us. First of all, with the good news of Jesus for the slow learners is that we can be honest. We don't have to hide and fake it. You know, we can admit our slowness to learn. And be re we, can, we can understand that it's, not leaders that are smarter than others. It is because these leaders that were going to be the leaders of the, the writers of the New Testament didn't seem to have any great intelligence that they could understand things. So we can just be honest. Um, so a, a gospel leader will not pretend. And if you meet somebody who's always pretending and trying to fake like they know stuff, 
you're meeting somebody who's not fully received the good news of Jesus. Because the good news for slow learners is you can admit when you don't know stuff and that you don't understand yet. We can be honest. Second thing with the good news for slow learners is that we can be teachable. You know, you remember the time in the New Testament, Peter, having been used of the Lord to preach the gospel, when it came to a certain city in Corinth, he was, eating, he was, he was caving under the pressure of Jewish people to not eat with the Gentile believers. Paul, who was not there at this moment, but was a, another apostle, had to confront Peter and rebuke him for this failure to live the gospel that he was believing. And that's written for us in the Bible. So, if we can receive good news for slow learners, we can be teachable. It means that a pastor doesn't need to know everything or not be able to be taught by other people. Or a parent cannot refuse to learn something from their children. Um, and we, we can be teachable. Consider because we aren't pretending to have always understood. I've known leaders, Christian leaders, who will tell you they've always believed everything they believe just now. They'll teach you as if they've always understood these things. And you're kind of like, how did you come to that conclusion? I'd like to hear the story. And it's like, well, no, I was born this way. Like, how did you, I don't, wait, huh? How did, no, as a gospel-affected slow learner, you can tell people, I've had to be taught this, and I was wrong before, and I've had to be taught, and now I've come to this point, and I still may have much more to learn. So as parents, as leaders that have received the good news for slow learners, we should be teachable if we've received it deeply. Finally, we can be patient with others. We can be patient with our children, with our spouses, with church members. We can be patient with our own parents who seem to be slow to admit or refusing to admit that they're slow learners. Whenever I hear an angry leader, a parent or a spouse, who is just sick of the other person, whether it's that spouse that just is just a slow learner, they keep repeating the same mistakes, or a child who seems to be for years in the same um, problem and same uh, struggle, um, or with their own parents as they're upset with them for not moving on past this point. Whenever, whenever I hear an angry leader, I recognize someone who has not fully embraced the good news for themselves, that they are slow learners, who also, it took God years and years to work the gospel into their lives. Um, sometimes we want people to receive the gospel in a moment when we took years to receive it and then many more years to understand it and still have much to understand. So what can we learn from this in our homes? If I started out our sermon talking about our 20th anniversary, and um, we got to the base camp after three hours, and that was halfway. The next half would end up taking us six and a half hours. And I, I told Jillian this is an allegory for where we're at right now, meaning it's very possible the hardest is yet to come. So in your marriage, with that spouse who is, seems to be a slow learner for how to love you well, could, could it be possible that receiving the gospel as a slow learner for yourself will allow you to be patient with that person?
as a slow learner themselves. Um, in our church, as we may move forward with decisions about where we're going to meet and how we're going to preach and all, many different things with our constitution and all of this kind of stuff, could we be patient with one another and be open to learn from one another? If we admitted that we are not better than these 12 disciples who seem to be very slow to understand. As we're discipling young men and women, college students and teenagers and children that um, seem like the, we forget the steps and the years that it took for God to teach us. And can we be patient with one another? And can we be teachable? Because we are slow learners. I want to specifically talk, though, to you and your relationship with God. Because for, for many of us, we get discouraged, not because of someone else, but we often get discouraged because of ourselves. Because I seem to hear the same lessons and then struggle with the same things over and over. And we, we get into a spiral of negativity that goes down and down, right? Because first we realize finally what, what we're in. Maybe it's a depression, maybe it's struggling with your own understanding of God's word or your own receiving of the gospel or many different things that it could be in the Christian life or some sins that you are, you are asking God to help you get over, um, sins of the heart, sins of idol worship that we do. And then we, what do we feel? Do we immediately feel the grace of God? Often, we feel angry with ourselves that we've been so slow to learn the lesson. And so what do we do? We just get more and more down on ourselves. But this isn't what the way Jesus treats you. With his disciples, he doesn't toss them away and say, guys, I'm sick of how slow you are to understand. No, he said, these are the people that he is using. And in that slowness to understand, he is patiently and kindly teaching you so that he can use you in the future for other slow learners. I think probably everybody I've ever met is a slow learner. There are slower learners that I may fit into that category in certain areas, and you may fit into that category in other areas. But all of us desperately need the good grace of our Jesus with slow learners. So, here's a few questions to conclude with today. First of all, if you feel needy today, like these hungry people at the beginning, just know that God's attitude towards you is that he's compassionate. He cares about you. If you feel proud toward God today and you recognize the spirit of the Pharisee in your heart, that no matter how much God has shown you, you want to make him show you more for you to believe, I want to give you the same warning Jesus gave you. He is far from the proud. He has shown you enough for you to receive him. Do not continue to resist and to set that bar for God to reach. He has been so gracious with you for you to receive him. Finally, do you find yourself like me to be, or like the disciples of Jesus, to be slow learners? If so, Jesus is patient with you. I want to say that again for this week as you find yourself struggling in your spiritual walk or whatever it is or with your spouse or with your children or with each other in this building or with others that are not a part of the family of God. 
Jesus is patient with you as a slow learner. Father, we thank you today for your word that tells us things we wouldn't otherwise know. We would imagine that you would be so sick of us by now if we didn't have this story of your patience with these men who you appointed to lead your church. I think we would not imagine that you were so patient with people so slow and lacking understanding as we are. So Lord, I pray now that your grace would deeply get into our understanding and that you could allow us to have joy even in our slow learning, to know that as we climb that mountain of life, that you are with us And we may only be able to go a few steps at a time and we have to sit down and rest. But you're with us in that and we're going to get there by your grace, in our slowness. And I pray for the marriages here that you would bless them and that you would teach patience, the same patience that you have with us that we would have with one another. I want to pray for our children that us parents would be eternally patient with them the way you are with us as they grow up, and I pray for our church that we would reflect your patience with each other and that from the leadership and every level of leadership that's in this building, that we would reflect your patience with one another and that we would receive your patience, that we would be teachable, that we would be humble, and kind to one another because of the kindness of our God in Christ to us. We pray these things in the name of our patient teacher, Jesus. Amen.